We're nearing the end of this book, so I wanted to remind you about the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed, where you can get ad-free access to the entire bookshelf. Before our next free book begins, we'll be taking a short break, during which we'll release a few episodes exclusive to the premium feed. So if you want a continuous stream of sleepy content, be sure to sign up. There's a seven-day free trial, so you can try it out and see if you like it before committing. Just follow the link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. In just a few clicks, you'll have the premium feed in your podcast player of choice. If premium isn't for you, then don't worry. We'll be back soon with a brand new book to bring you sweet dreams. Thank you so much for your listenership and support. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and I'm so glad to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be returning to Anne of Green Gables. But before we open our book, just enjoy this moment to relax. You have nothing left to do and nothing to worry about. Take a big stretch in bed, however feels best for you. Give your body this opportunity to release any tension from the day. Next, let's take a few deep breaths to help with that. So, inhale, collecting any worries or concerns, and then exhale, letting them all go. Once more now, inhale, and exhale. Wonderful. Last time, Anne had taken all her exams and was waiting to hear the results which would be published in the paper. Weeks had passed when Diana flew into Green Gables, clutching a newspaper and announcing that Anne had passed at the very top her class, with her rival, Gilbert Blythe, just beneath her but with the exact same pass mark. The Cuthberts were bursting with pride, especially Matthew. A few weeks later, Anne was preparing to go to a concert at the White Sands Hotel, in which she had been asked to perform a recitation. Diana had helped her dress, and they travelled into town with Jane Andrews and her brother, Billy. The concert was filled with many more strange and expensive people than Anne had anticipated, and she began to feel so nervous that she was positively dumbstruck when she stood up to recite. However, she quickly recovered her nerves and gave a performance 
worthy of a standing ovation. Tonight, we pick up with Anne, preparing to head off to Queen's for her first term. So just close your eyes and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Green Gables. Chapter 34 A Queen's Girl Continued The day finally came when Anne must go to town. She and Matthew drove in one fine September morning after a tearful parting with Diana and an untearful practical one with Marilla. But when Anne had gone, Diana dried her tears and went to a beach picnic at White Sands with some of her Carmody cousins, where she contrived to enjoy herself tolerably well, while Marilla plunged fiercely into unnecessary work and kept at it all day long with the bitterest kind of heartache, the ache that burns and gnaws and cannot wash itself away in ready tears. But that night, when Marilla went to bed, acutely and miserably conscious that the little gable room at the end of the hall was untenanted by any vivid, young life and unstirred by any soft breathing, she buried her face in her pillow and wept for her girl in a passion of sobs that appalled her when she grew calm enough to reflect how very wicked it must be to take on so about a fellow creature. Anne and the rest of the Avonlea scholars reached town just in time to hurry off to the academy. That first day passed pleasantly enough in a whirl of excitement, meeting all the new students, learning to know the professors by sight and being assorted and organized into classes. Anne intended taking up the second year work, being advised to do so by Miss Stacy. Gilbert Blythe elected to do the same. This meant getting a first-class teacher's license in one year instead of two if they were successful. But it also meant much more and harder work. Jane, Ruby, Josie, Charlie and Moody Spurgeon, not being troubled with the stirrings of ambition, were content to take up the second-class work. Anne was conscious of a pang of loneliness when she found herself in a room with 50 other students, not one of whom she knew, except the tall, brown-haired boy across the room, and knowing him in the fashion she did did not help her much, as she reflected pessimistically. 
Yet she was undeniably glad that they were in the same class. The old rivalry could still be carried on, and Anne would hardly have known what to do if it had been lacking. I wouldn't feel comfortable without it, she thought. Gilbert looks awfully determined. I suppose he's making up his mind here and now to win the medal. What a splendid chin he has. I never noticed it before. I do wish Jane and Ruby had gone in for first class too. I suppose I won't feel so much like a cat in a strange garret when I get acquainted though. I wonder which of the girls here are going to be my friends. It's a really interesting speculation. Of course, I promised Diana that no Queen's girl, no matter how much I liked her, should ever be as dear to me as she is. But I've lots of second best affections to bestow. I like the look of that girl with the brown eyes and the crimson waist. She looks vivid and red rosy. There's that pale, fair one gazing out of the window. She has lovely hair and looks as if she knows a thing or two about dreams. I'd like to know them both, know them well, well enough to walk with my arm about their waists and call them nicknames. But just now, I don't know them, and they don't know me, and probably don't want to know me particularly. Oh, it is lonesome. It was lonesomer still when Anne found herself alone in her hall bedroom that night at twilight. She was not bored with the other girls who all had relatives in town to take pity on them. Miss Josephine Barry would have liked to board her, but Beechwood was so far from the academy that it was out of the question. So Miss Barry hunted up a boarding house, assuring Matthew and Marilla that it was the very place for Anne. The lady who keeps it is a reduced gentlewoman, explained Miss Barry. Her husband was a British officer, and she is very careful with what sort of borders she takes. Anne will not meet with any objectionable persons under her roof. The table is good, and the house is near the academy in a quiet neighborhood. All this might be quite true, and indeed proved to be so, but it did not materially help Anne in the first agony of homesickness that seized upon her. She looked dismally about her narrow little room, with its dull, papered, pictureless walls, its small iron bedstead, and empty bookcase, and a horrible choke came into her throat as she thought about her own room at Green Gables, where she would have the pleasant consciousness of a great, green still outdoors, of sweet peas growing in the garden, and moonlight falling on the orchard. 
of the brook below the slope and the spruce boughs tossing in the night wind beyond it of a vast starry sky and the light from Diana's window shining out through the gap in the trees. Here, there was nothing of this. Anne knew that outside of her window was a hard street with a network of telephone wires shutting out the sky. The tramp of unknown feet and a thousand lights gleaming on stranger faces. She knew that she was going to cry and fought against it. I won't cry, she told herself. Silly and weak. There's the third tear splashing down by my nose. There are more coming. I must think of something funny to stop them. But there's nothing funny except what is connected with Avonlea. That only makes things worse. I'm going home next Friday, but that seems a hundred years away. Oh, Matthew is nearly home by now, and Marilla is at the gate, looking down the lane for him. Oh, there's no use counting these tears. They're coming in a flood presently. I can't cheer up. I don't want to cheer up. It's nicer to be miserable. The flood of tears would have come, no doubt, had not Josie Pye appeared at that moment. In the joy of seeing a familiar face, Anne forgot that there had never been much love lost between her and Josie. As a part of Avonlea life, even a pie was welcome. I'm so glad you came up, Anne said sincerely. You've been crying, remarked Josie with aggravating pity. I suppose you're homesick. Some people have so little self-control in that respect. I've no intention of being homesick, I can tell you. Town's too jolly after that pokey old Avonlea. I wonder how I ever existed there so long. You shouldn't cry, Anne. It isn't becoming, for your nose and eyes get red, and then you seem all red. I had a perfectly scrumptious time in the academy today. Our French professor is simply a duck. His moustache would give you curl-ups at the heart. Have you anything eatable around, Anne? I'm literally starving. Uh, I guessed likely Marilla would load you up with cake. That's why I called round. Otherwise, I'd have gone to the park to hear the band play with Frank Stockley. He boards the same place as I do, and he's a sport. He noticed you in class today and asked me who the red-headed girl was. I told him you were an orphan that the Cuthberts had adopted and nobody knew very much about what you'd been before that. Anne was wondering if, after all, 
Solitude and tears were not more satisfactory than Josie Pye's companionship. When Jane and Ruby appeared, each with an inch of Queen's colour ribbon, purple and scarlet, pinned proudly to her coat. As Josie was not speaking to Jane just then, she had to subside into comparative harmlessness. Well, Jane said with a sigh, I feel as I'd lived many moons since the morning. I ought to be home studying my Virgil. That horrid old professor gave us twenty lines to start in on tomorrow, but I simply couldn't settle down to study tonight. Anne, methinks I see the traces of tears. If you've been crying, do own up. It will restore my self-respect, for I was shedding tears freely before Ruby came along. I don't mind being a goose so much if someone else is goosey too. Cake, you'll give me a teeny piece, won't you? Thank you. It has the real Avonlea flavor. Ruby, perceiving the Queen's calendar lying on the table, wanted to know if Anne meant to try for the gold medal. Anne blushed and admitted she was thinking of it. Oh, that reminds me, said Josie. Queen's is to get one of the Avery scholarships after all. The word came today. Frank Stockley told me. His uncle is one of the board of governors, you know. It will be announced in the academy tomorrow. An Avery scholarship. Anne felt her heart beat more quickly and the horizons of her ambition shifted and broadened as if by magic. Before Josie had told the news, Anne's highest pinnacle of aspiration had been a teacher's provincial license, first class at the end of the year, and perhaps the medal. But now, in one moment, Anne saw herself winning the Avery Scholarship, taking an arts course at Redmond College and graduating in a gown and mortarboard before the echo of Josie's words had died away. For the Avery Scholarship was in English, and Anne felt that here her foot was on native health. A wealthy manufacturer of New Brunswick had died and left part of his fortune to endow a large number of scholarships to be distributed among the various high schools and academies of the maritime provinces according to their respective standings. There had been much doubt whether one would be allotted to Queen's, but the matter was settled at last, and at the end of the year, the graduate who made the highest mark in English and English literature would win the scholarship. $250 a year for four years at Redmond College. No wonder that Anne went to bed that night with tingling cheeks.
I'll win that scholarship if hard work can do it, she resolved. Wouldn't Matthew be proud if I got to be a BA? Oh, it's delightful to have ambitions. I'm so glad I have such a lot, and there never seems to be any end to them. That's the best of it. Just as soon as you attain to one ambition, you see another one, glittering higher up still. Does make life so interesting. Chapter 35 The Winter at Queen's Anne's homesickness wore off, greatly helping in the wearing by her weekend home visits. As long as the open weather lasted, the Avonlea students went out to Carmody on the new branch railway every Friday night. Diana and several other Avonlea young folks were generally on hand to meet them, and they all walked over to Avonlea in a merry party. Anne thought those Friday evening adventures over the autumnal hills in the crisp golden air with the home lights of Avonlea twinkling beyond were the best and dearest hours in the whole week. Gilbert Blythe nearly always walked with Ruby Gillis and carried her satchel for her. Ruby was a very handsome young lady now thinking herself quite as grown up as she really was. She wore skirts as long as her mother would let her, and did her hair up in town, though she had to take it down when she went home. She had large, bright blue eyes, a brilliant complexion, and a plump, showy figure. She laughed a great deal, was cheerful and good-tempered, and enjoyed the pleasant things of life, frankly. But I shouldn't think she was the sort of girl Gilbert would like, whispered Jane to Anne. Anne did not think so either, but she would not have said so for the Avery Scholarship. She could not help thinking, too, that it would be very pleasant to have such a friend as Gilbert to jest and chatter with and exchange ideas about books and studies and ambitions. Gilbert had ambitions, she knew, and Ruby Gillis did not seem the sort of person with whom such could be profitably discussed. There was no silly sentiment in Anne's ideas concerning Gilbert. Boys were to her, when she thought about them at all, merely possible good comrades. If she and Gilbert had been friends, she would not have cared how many other friends he had, nor with whom he walked. She had a genius for friendship. Girlfriends she had plenty she had a vague consciousness that masculine friendship might also be a good thing to round out one's conceptions of companionship and furnish broader standpoints of judgment and comparison. 
Not that Anne could have put her feelings on the matter into just such clear definition. But she thought that if Gilbert had ever walked home with her from the train, over the crisp fields and along the ferny byways, they might have had many and merry and interesting conversations about the new world that was opening around them and their hopes and ambitions therein. Gilbert was a clever young fellow with his own thoughts about things and a determination to get the best out of life and put the best into it. Ruby Gillis told Jane Andrews that she didn't understand half the things Gilbert Blythe said. He talked just like Anne Shirley did when she had a thoughtful fit on, and for her part, she didn't think it any fun to be bothering about books and that sort of thing when you didn't have to. Frank Stockley had lots more dash and go, but then he wasn't half as good-looking as Gilbert, and she really couldn't decide which she liked best. In the academy, Anne gradually drew a little circle of friends about her. Thoughtful, imaginative, ambitious students like herself, with the rose-red girl, Stella Maynard, and the dream girl, Priscilla Grant, she soon became intimate. Finding the latter pale, spiritual-looking maiden to be full to the brim of mischief and pranks and fun, while the vivid, black-eyed Stella had a heart full of wistful dreams and fancies, as aerial and rainbow-like as Anne's own. After the Christmas holidays, the Avonlea students gave up going home on Fridays and settled down to hard work. By this time, all the Queen's scholars had gravitated into their own places in the ranks and the various classes had assumed distinct and settled shadings of individuality. Certain facts had become generally accepted. It was admitted that the medal contestants had practically narrowed down to three, Gilbert Blythe, Anne Shirley, and Lewis Wilson. The Avery Scholarship was more doubtful, any one of a certain six being a possible winner. The bronze medal for mathematics was considered as good as won by a fat, funny little upcountry boy with a bumpy forehead and a patched coat. Ruby Gillis was the handsomest girl of the year at the academy. In the second year classes, Stella Maynard carried off the palm for beauty, with small but critical minority in favour of Anne Shirley. Ethel Marr was admitted by all competent judges to have the most stylish modes of hairdressing, and Jane Andrews, 
plain, plodding, conscientious Jane carried off the honors in the domestic science course. Even Josie Pye attained a certain preeminence as the sharpest-tongued young lady in attendance at Queen's. So it may be fairly stated that Miss Stacy's old pupils held their own in the wider arena of the academical course. Anne worked hard and steadily. Her rivalry with Gilbert was as intense as it had ever been in Avonlea School, although it was not known in the class at large. But somehow, the bitterness had gone out of it. Anne no longer wished to win for the sake of defeating Gilbert, rather for the proud consciousness of a well-won victory over a worthy foeman. It would have been worthwhile to win, but she no longer thought life would be insupportable if she did not. In spite of lessons, the students found opportunities for pleasant times, Anne spent many of her spare hours at Beechwood and generally ate her Sunday dinners there and went to church with Miss Barry. The latter was, as she admitted, growing old, but her black eyes were not dim, nor the vigor of her tongue in the least abated. But she never sharpened the latter on Anne who continued to be a prime favorite with the critical old lady. That Anne girl improves all the time, she said. I get tired of other girls. There is such a provoking and eternal sameness about them. Anne has as many shades as a rainbow, and every shade is the prettiest while it lasts. I don't know that she is as amusing as she was when she was a child, but she makes me love her, and I like people who make me love them. Saves me so much trouble in making myself love them. Then, almost before anybody realized it, spring had come. Out in Avonlea, the mayflowers were peeping pinkly out on the sere barrens, where snow wreaths lingered, and the mist of green was on the woods and in the valleys. But in Charlottetown, harassed Queen's students thought and talked only of examinations It doesn't seem possible that the term is nearly over, said Anne. Why, last fall, it seems so long to look forward to. A whole winter of studies and classes. And here we are, with the exams looming up next week. Girls, sometimes I feel as if those exams meant everything when I look at the big buds swelling on those chestnut trees and the misty blue air at the end of the streets, they don't seem half so important. Jane and Ruby and Josie, who had dropped in, 
did not take this view of it. To them, the coming examinations were constantly very important indeed, far more important than chestnut buds or maytime hazes. It was all very well for Anne, who was sure of passing at least, to have her moments of belittling them. But when your whole future depended on them, as the girls truly thought theirs did, you could not regard them philosophically. I've lost ten pounds in the last two weeks, sighed Jane. It's no use to say don't worry. I will worry. Worrying helps you some. Seems as if you were doing something when you're worrying. It would be dreadful if I failed to get my license after going to Queen's all winter and spending so much money. I don't care, said Josie Pye. If I don't pass this year, I'm coming back next. My father can afford to send me. Anne, Frank Stockley says that Professor Tremaine said Gilbert Blythe was sure to get the medal and that Emily Clay would likely win the Avery Scholarship. That may make me feel badly tomorrow, Josie, said Anne, laughing. But just now... I honestly feel that as long as I know the violets are coming out, all purple, down in the hollow below Green Gables, and that little ferns are poking their heads up in Lover's Lane, it's not a great deal of difference whether I win the Avery or not. I've done my best, and I begin to understand what is meant by the joy of the strife. Next to trying and winning, the best thing is trying and failing. Girls, don't talk about exams. Look at that arch of pale green sky over those houses and picture to yourself what it must look like over the purpley dark beechwoods back of Avonlea. What are you going to wear for commencement, Jane? asked Ruby practically. Jane and Josie both answered at once, and the chatter drifted into a side eddy of fashions. But Anne, with her elbows on the windowsill, her soft cheek laid against her clasped hands and her eyes filled with visions, looked out unheedingly across the city roof and spire to that glorious dome of sunset sky and wove her dreams of a possible future from the golden tissue of youth's own optimism. All the beyond was hers, with its possibilities lurking rosily in the oncoming years. Each year, a rose of promise to be woven into an immortal chaplet. Chapter 36 The Glory and the Dream 
On the morning when the final results of all the examinations were to be posted on the bulletin board at Queen's, Anne and Jane walked down the street together. Jane was smiling and happy. Examinations were over, and she was comfortably sure she had made a pass at least. Further considerations troubled Jane not at all. She had no soaring ambitions, and consequently was not affected with the unrest attendant thereon. For we pay a price for everything we get or take in this world, and although ambitions are well worth having, they are not to be cheaply won, but exact their dues of work and self-denial, anxiety, and discouragement. Anne was pale and quiet. In ten more minutes, she would know who had won the medal and who the Avery. Beyond those ten minutes, there did not seem just then to be anything worthy being called time. Of course you will win one of them anyhow, said Jane who couldn't understand how the faculty could be so unfair as to order it otherwise. I have no hope of the Avery, said Anne. Everybody says Emily Clay will win it, and I'm not going to march up to that bulletin board and look at it before everybody. I haven't the moral courage. I'm going straight to the girls' dressing room. You must read the announcements and then come and tell me, Jane. And I implore you, in the name of our old friendship, to do it as quickly as possible. If I have failed, just say so, without trying to break it gently. And whatever you do, don't sympathize with me. Promise me this, Jane. Jane promised solemnly. But as it happened... There was no necessity for such a promise. When they went up the entrance steps of Queen's, they found the hall full of boys who were carrying Gilbert Blythe around on their shoulders and yelling at the tops of their voices, Hurrah for Blythe, medalist. For a moment, Anne felt one sickening pang of defeat and disappointment. So she had failed, and Gilbert had won. Well, Matthew would be sorry. He had been so sure she would win. And then somebody called out, three cheers for Miss Shirley, winner of the Avery. Oh, Anne, gasped Jane, as they fled to the girls' dressing room amid hearty cheers. Oh, Anne, I'm so proud. Isn't it splendid? And then the girls were around them, and Anne was the centre of a laughing, congratulating group. Her shoulders were thumped, and her hands shaken vigorously. She was pushed and pulled and hugged and among it all, 
she managed to whisper to Jane, Oh, won't Matthew and Marilla be pleased? I must write the news home right away. Commencement was the next important happening. The exercises were held in the big assembly hall of the academy. Addresses were given, essays read, songs sung, the public award of diplomas, prizes, and medals made. Matthew and Marilla were there, with eyes and ears for only one student on the platform. A tall girl in pale green, with faintly flushed cheeks and starry eyes, who read the best essay and was pointed out and whispered about as the Avery winner. Reckon you're glad we kept her, Marilla, whispered Matthew, speaking for the first time since he had entered the hall when Anne had finished her essay. It's not the first time I've been glad, retorted Marilla. You do like to rub things in, Matthew Cuthbert. Miss Barry, who was sitting behind them, leaned forward and poked Marilla in the back with her parasol. Aren't you very proud of that Anne girl? I am, she said. Anne went home to Avonlea with Matthew and Marilla that evening. She had not been home since April, and she felt that she could not wait another day. The apple blossoms were out, and the world was fresh and young. Diana was at Green Gables to meet her, in her own white room, where Marilla had set a flowering house rose on the windowsill. Anne looked about her and drew a long breath of happiness. Oh, Diana, it's so good to be back again so good to see those pointed firs coming out against the pink sky and that white orchard and the old snow queen. Isn't the breath of the mint delicious? And the tea rose, why it's a song and a hope and a prayer all in one. And it's good to see you again, Diana. I thought you liked that Stella Maynard better than me, said Diana reproachfully. Josie Pye told me you did. Josie said you were infatuated with her. Anne laughed and pelted Diana with the faded June lilies of her bouquet. Stella Maynard is the dearest girl in the world except one. And you are that one, Diana, she said. I love you more than ever. I have so many things to tell you. But now I feel as if it were joy enough to sit here and look at you. I'm tired, I think. Tired of being studious and ambitious. I mean to spend at least two hours tomorrow lying out in the orchard grass, thinking absolutely nothing. You've done splendidly, Anne, said Diana. 
I suppose you won't be teaching now that you've won the Avery. No, I'm going to Redmond in September, Anne replied. Doesn't it seem wonderful? I'll have a brand new stock of ambition laid in by that time after three glorious golden months of vacation. Jane and Ruby are going to teach. Isn't it splendid to think we all got through, even to Moody Spurgeon and Josie Pye? The Newbridge trustees have offered Jane their school already, said Diana. Gilbert Blythe is going to teach too. He has to. His father can't afford to send him to college next year after all, so he means to earn his own way through. I'll expect he'll get the school here if Miss Ames decides to leave. Anne felt a strange little sensation of dismayed surprise. She had not known this. She had expected that Gilbert would be going to Redmond also. What would she do without their inspiring rivalry? Would not work, even at a co-educational college with a real degree in prospect, be rather flat without her friend the enemy. The next morning at breakfast, it suddenly struck Anne that Matthew was not looking well. Surely he was much greyer than he had been a year before. Marilla, she said hesitatingly when he had gone out, is Matthew quite well? No, he isn't, said Marilla in a troubled tone. He's had some real bad spells with his heart this spring. He won't spare himself a mite. I've been real worried about him. But he's some better this while back. and We've got a good hired man, so hoping he'll kind of rest and pick up. Maybe he will now that you're home. You always cheer him up. Anne leaned across the table and took Marilla's face in her hands. You are not looking as well yourself as I'd like to see you, Marilla. You look tired. I'm afraid you've been working too hard. You must take a rest now that I'm home. I'm just going to take this one day off to visit all the dear old sports and hunt up my old dreams and then it will be your turn to be lazy while I do the work. Marilla smiled affectionately at her girl. It's not the work, it's my head, she said. Got a pain so often now, behind my eyes. Dr. Spence has been fussing with glasses, but they don't do me any good. There is a distinguished oculist coming to the island the last of June. The doctor says I must see him. Guess I'll have to. Can't read or sew with any comfort now. Well, Anne, you've done real well at Queen's, I must say. To take the first class license in one year and win the Avery Scholarship. Well, well. Mrs. Lynn says pride goes before a fall. She doesn't believe in the higher education of women at all. 
She says it unfits them for women's true sphere. I don't believe a word of it. Speaking of Rachel reminds me. Did you hear anything about the Abbey Bank lately, Anne? I heard it was shaky, answered Anne. Why? That's what Rachel said, replied Marilla. She was up here one day last week and said there was some talk about it. Matthew felt real worried. All we have saved is in that bank. Every penny. I wanted Matthew to put it in the savings bank in the first place, but old Mr. Abbey was a great friend of father's and he'd always banked with him. Matthew said any bank with him at the head was good enough for anybody. I think he has only been its nominal head for many years, said Anne. He is a very old man. His nephews are really at the head of the institution. Well, when Rachel told us that, I wanted Matthew to draw our money right out. He said he'd think of it. Mr. Russell told him yesterday that the bank was all right, Marilla said. Anne had her good day in the companionship of the outdoor world. She never forgot that day. It was so bright and golden and fair, so free from shadow and so lavish of blossom. Anne spent some of its rich hours in the orchard. She went to the Dryad's Bubble and Willowmere and Violet Vale. She called at the manse and had a satisfying talk with Mrs. Allen. And finally, in the evening, she went with Matthew for the cows, through Lover's Lane to the back pasture. The woods were all gloried through with sunset, and the warm splendor of it streamed down through the hill gaps in the west. Matthew walked slowly with bent head. Anne, tall and erect, suited her springing step to his. You've been working too hard today, Matthew, she said reproachfully. Why won't you take things easier? Well, no, I can't seem to, said Matthew as he opened the yard gate to let the cows through. It's only that I'm getting old, Anne, and keep forgetting it. Well, I've always worked pretty hard and would rather drop in harness. If I had been the boy you sent for, said Anne wistfully, I'd be able to help you so much now and spare you in a hundred ways. I could find it in my heart to wish I had been just for that. Well, now I'd rather have you than a dozen boys, Anne, said Matthew, patting her hand. Just mind you that, rather than a dozen boys. Well, now. Guess it wasn't a boy that took the Avery scholarship, was it? It was a girl. My girl. My girl that I'm proud of. He smiled his shy smile at her as she went into the yard. Anne took the memory of it with her when she went to her room that night 
and sat for a long while at her open window, thinking of the past and dreaming of the future. Outside, the Snow Queen was mistily white in the moonshine. The frogs were singing in the marsh beyond the orchard slope. Anne always remembered the silvery, peaceful beauty and fragrant calm of that night. It was the last night before sorrow touched her life, and no life is ever quite the same again once that cold, sanctifying touch has been laid upon it.